and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And a couple of things before we get started with our great guest. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas that celebrates Christmas. Uh, we'll be back on the 26th. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful, uh, wonderful time. And uh, with our guest tonight, I've been really looking forward to speaking to him actually a long time uh, when he first came out, uh, Jacques Vallée. And uh, I think it was Wonders in the Sky came out with historic UFOs way back. Uh, I, I was doing the show. I can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, I've always really have been fascinated by that aspect of you know, the ufology, the ancient stories and things like that. So it's uh, Chris Aubeck, and uh, he'll be coming in in just a minute. We're going to be talking about his uh, new book called, just, let's see, it's called Alien Artifacts, The Forgotten Story of How We Came to Believe in Visitors from the Stars. And so uh, really looking forward to speaking to him about that. And he's also going to touch a little bit on his other book, which is about disc-shaped objects so it should be fascinating our blog this week is a nuts and bolts ufo guy and marley woods uh, by charles lear check that out and uh cor of course last week uh, we had a blog including our, our guest tonight chris Aubeck. so uh check that out as well i'm going to link both of those uh to the show notes and i think that is about it uh again i wish you uh, all a uh, merry christmas those who celebrate and let me bring my guest in now. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, hi there. And I, I do have to say that this is a pre-recorded show because I guess it would be in the middle of the night uh, where you you live, right? I think it's about two in the morning or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, my four, normal hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's uh, four p.m. now here in Spain, and, and uh, here. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I have done I have done shows at, at very strange times in the in the middle of the night for me, and I sort of look like this, and it's slightly different. <laughs> it could be a, a show about That's zombies, anyway, I suppose. <laughs> so I I like to ask this of my guests that I haven't spoke to before prior. Uh, what uh, actually led to you having a fascination with this topic? Mm -hmm. Well, when I was a young teenager, around 14, 13 years old, I collected Marvel Comics in London. I'm from London originally. And I remember going to this uh, market stall where I'd pick up 1960s uh, Avengers comic books. And I came across a, an old scruffy paperback uh, by Eric Von Daniken. It was his second book, uh, Return to the Stars. And I thought it was pretty fascinating. And my mind was already open to uh, sort of science fiction type possibilities because of, of my comic reading. And so I started um, reading that. And I thought, this is interesting how mythology folklore and archaeology seem to intersect and how this might support the idea that um, our planet had been visited by aliens in antiquity. And it started from then. Um, I became a member of the Ancient Astronaut Society when I was about 15, 16. When I was 18, I went off to the States, uh, spent a couple of weeks uh, visiting um, some of my favorite authors and um, 
then I began looking into this uh, in a different way by, by searching through old books and newspapers for any kind of evidence I could on the subject of um, strange phenomena in general, but particularly UFOs that happened to, uh, yeah, well, our ancestors' view of, of the paranormal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I mentioned this, uh, something, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but when you're going back in time, this is really uh, interesting. I put this up a couple of times during my show. It's the uh, Simeon Perkins Diary of 1796. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, um, I, believe, I, have, I believe we mentioned yeah. that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, you did mention that one? Yeah, Here, here's the account of it. I've shown that a few, but it's fascinating um, when you really think about you know, all through time, there's been something reported. You know, I mean, you go back in some of your books to back to early BC history, you know, I mean, and it really is something. Um, you know, I read a couple of excerpts from your latest book, and one of them is the, the fictional account. I can't remember exactly what it's called, um, but uh, 1846 or seven, I think it was, maybe 1848, when the guy's looking into the telescope and he has his wife take a look and the thing lands. Uh, but you know, what's really, I know that's fictional, but it's really, what's really interesting about that is uh, the thing that you hear people say a lot about when they have an encounter with a uh, being is the tight fitted, you know, suit that they, they wear. And that was back then. And it almost makes you wonder if the fiction was based on something. Well, I mean, uh, the idea of a tight fitting suit is actually earlier than that. That would be 18th century. And we're talking about Emanuel Swedenborg, the Swedish mystic who said that he'd um, met aliens and traveled through the universe, uh, had encountered um, extraterrestrials on many different planets. And he said that the Mercurians uh, were the most interesting who travel around um, planets uh, looking for information, trying to build a kind of encyclopedia of knowledge about the whole of existence. And they uh, dress in, in blue one-piece suits without seams. And uh, of course, uh, Swedenborg's understanding was that they were from the planet Mercury. Uh, these days, we would call them greys or, or whatever uh, race of extraterrestrials is currently in fashion. But the parallels are very interesting. Uh, I write in, in Alien Artifacts, uh, the, this book that you've been mentioning, um, about how the um, Swedenborg's uh, Mercurians uh, traveled the universe in a sphere of light how they could read minds. Uh, they used um, a, a form of telepathy. And we're talking about a period in which the expression telepathy hadn't been coined yet. And mm. parallels are, are deep and fascinating. That's really something. And it's, it's pretty uh, interesting how they always assumed that they were basically in our solar system from one of the planets that we know of and not that's uh, right yeah. although Swedenborg did say that he traveled outside our our solar system too i mean the idea of the inhabit an in inhabited universe replete with life goes back to the ancient greeks to the atomist school of thought 
Um, they believe that all things were made from atoms, which is an amazing um, conclusion to reach when the, when microscopes hadn't been invented yet. And they believe that, um, well, this particular school of thought believe that our atoms um, sort of formed form patterns and formed living beings and mountains and whatever, and that it would be replicated throughout the universe. And so they were aware of planets beyond the solar system. They believed in, in galaxies and probably an infinite number of galaxies where um, organic life would have been created in just the same way that it happened on, on planet Earth. You know, I recently had uh, Adam Frank on, an uh, astrophysicist, and, you know, I, I, I brought that up about, you know, how likely, um, you know, life is out there, you know, uh, uh, in his thoughts and his opinions and things like that. And um, most people like him, uh, uh, it was his opinion as well, is that us being, you know, bipedal, binocular vision, you know, um, opposing thumbs is kind of, it would never happen again. Uh, you know, so that seems like very unlikely to him. But, um, you know, I personally think it's, it just seems like evolution goes in that direction because it works. But then again, there are so many variables and that's, that's what you do here a lot is, uh, you know, humanoid type figures. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are all types of concepts, of course, as you know, you know, the time travel one and all, all that, and, uh, the hybrid, you know, people are suggesting that, or, or, um, as I've brought up on this show before, I was told by, uh, someone that was in Vietnam studying UFOs for the air force told me in the 1990s that he thought the government thought we were a Petri dish, which I, that the aliens are using us like a Petri dish. Uh, you know, that was uh, what he, the conclusion at that time in the 60s, late 60s, that uh, he was told by someone in the government at that time, according to him. You know, I'm not saying these are all factual because I don't really know. But still, um, it is interesting how they always seem to be very much um, humanoid, you know, in, in these encounters. You don't often hear of any other type of strange being. You do hear the variations and uh, didn't one of your accounts say that they thought they had springs on their feet so they could travel fast or something like that, which I think is pretty Well, funny. there were lots of, um, in, in the 19th century, many mediums during the, the spiritualist movement said that they could travel um, into space uh, using the power of their minds, basically what we would call a remote viewing today. And they they said that they had um, had encounters or at least observed beings on other planets who used springs on their feet. But um, those those were not the typical stories. What I do in in this book is, um, in fact, it's a book series, and I was rather hoping it would be only three, but I have a feeling it's going to be four or more. But I'm going. Back to the origins of the belief in in alien visitors, going back to the origins of ufology itself, and finding out when we started believing uh, that that planet Earth could be visited from uh, by creatures or beings from other planets, 
and um, I show how this has evolved from very ancient times down towards um, well um, in medieval in the medieval period it was established that um, the plurality of worlds hypothesis the idea that there could be more than one planet like ours with with intelligent life on it was established officially by the by the Catholic Church in the year 1277 mm. and um, starting from that point onwards it did open up a kind of um, a gateway into uh, new possibilities. Then uh, from the beginning of the 19th century, what we find is uh, people started speculating very seriously that pieces of other civilizations, and that's why the book's called Alien Artifacts, could reach the planet Earth. So by 1823, for example, um, um, a writer, uh, a French writer called Francois Chabrier, um, reached the conclusion that the asteroid belt uh, had uh, what was composed of pieces of a planet that had been destroyed in in the in the way that Krypton was destroyed in in, in Superman mm. stories, and that uh, not only pieces of the planet but also uh, survivors from that planet had come to Earth. And that's 1823. So, um, in that sense, uh, 2023 is the 200th anniversary of the ancient aliens hypothesis. But of oh. course, uh, he oh. also reached the conclusion that they were humanoid, that they were uh, sufficiently similar to us to be able to interbreed with us, to become our gods. We've all we've always had this idea that um, ancient um, aliens or modern ones should be somewhat humanoid in appearance. I think it's I think it's because a lot of it's evolved from um, the idea that uh, if they were creations of God, then God uh, created us in His image, and therefore aliens would look to a to a, um, a considerable degree uh, like ourselves. Ah, interesting. I never thought of that angle of it. Uh, how, through throughout time, um, you hear of, you know, different accounts in indigenous of America, uh, you hear of the star people. Um, and I do believe that um, I've heard that Aborigines had, you know, a similar type of thing that they would talk about. And is this as far as you know, and all your research that you've done, do you think these accounts are basically worldwide that people have talked about these type of things? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've, I've been researching uh, folklore and mythology in this way for around, I'm 52, and I'd say that since I was about 14, 15, I've been collecting stories, so that's quite a long time. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's um, We're talking about over... I mean, I, I would say every single country, every every culture in the world has has come to that conclusion sooner or later that we've been guided or visited or created by uh, beings uh, from the sky. And the idea that um, the Aborigines in Australia uh, had that had that theory or had that belief independently from from um, African uh, 
communities and other cultures across the globe is fascinating. I don't know whether that means that we're talking about a Jungian archetype, but we're looking always towards the sky for, um, for, for help and uh, for, for some kind of answer. Uh, or whether um, you know something uh, literally did come from the sky at some point, but it's interesting that you you you, you mention uh, Australia and the Aborigines because in in my book in Alien Artifacts I have a whole chapter about Australia because there was a mm. point in the 19th century where people reached the conclusion that Australian Aborigines and the whole continent itself could have come from outer space. There was a, a theory from the 1870s onwards that maybe Australia had been an asteroid that had fallen down from the sky into the Pacific Ocean. And that would explain why the flora and fauna uh, of that continent are so, are so different from what you would find anywhere else. And we're talking about a theory from 150 years ago. So we can see that, um, the, the this obsession with finding with, with with looking for signs of extraterrestrial contact has been with us for centuries and centuries it's just that we've collectively forgotten about it most people think that these theories and ideas originated in the 20th century but if you but the further you look back the more you find there was this um there's a, an old english story about the green children of woolpit which is uh, about, I think it's a 12th or 11th century story about these green-skinned children who appear from nowhere. And um, there are some modern 20th century books, which uh, Jacques uh, Berzier, for example, mentions that maybe they came from another planet, which seems like a, an amazing 20th century idea, looking, looking at the, the ancient past through sort of space-age glasses. But in reality, if you if you go back to the 16th and 17th century, people already reached that conclusion. 600 years ago, people speculated that maybe these green-skinned children had come from another planet. So, I mean, it, we we haven't reinvented well, we haven't invented the wheel. We're we're just constantly reinventing it. Right. You know, um, if it's possible that a society out there is say a million years more advanced than us then you know one of the uh, discussions i've had with astronomers and uh people of science you know they i'm sure you've heard this also many times is that you know they basically can't get there from here in any reasonable amount of time and you know i bring up well perhaps there's some something in physics we haven't figured out yet that they have you know and so but i think when the the most recent person I had on, as I mentioned, was Adam Frank a few weeks ago. And, you know, he's, you know, basically agreeing that it's a possibility they figured out how to manip manipulate time, space time, you know, for, for travel. Um, but it doesn't matter if it was ancient in our times, these societies could be advanced, you know, a million years ago. Um, so um, as far as you know, what is the earliest account of, you know, someone claiming that we have been visited? Well, um, we have to distinguish between UFO reports and mythology or um, religious interpretations of strange phenomena in the sky. 
and actual claims that um, that UFOs have been seen or aliens have come here. So if we think about UFO reports, there are some uh, Sumerian tablets which are interesting. They talk mm. about omens. Uh, they mention uh, dark meteorites, for example, or meteors, um, which are very difficult to explain because um, meteors are never dark when you see one that's always going to be bright. So this kind of thing. They, they, they do mention these, these Sumerian tablets. I mean, we're talking about 5,000 years ago. Um, very unusual phenomena in the sky, which were, which were interpreted as omens. If that's classifiable as, as UFOs, I don't know. Um, in Egypt, too, uh, there, there are very, very few um, references to UFOs in ancient Egypt, very few in ancient Greece. But the ones that you do find uh, are certainly interesting and talk about lights behaving weirdly. Um, then when we talk about, of course, uh, mythology and the idea that we are visited by, by people from the moon or from the planets, I mean, we don't know how far they, they go back because our ancestors didn't leave a, a written record in most cases, but we can at least push that back about four or 5,000 years. Um, then, I mean, the stories about, about invasions from the moon by, by moon people, we can even mm. find a, a 10th century uh, story about that, about how um, the Japanese emperor decided to to fight uh, a team of, of people from from space uh, and lost because they of course had advanced technology I've put that in the book alien um, alien artifacts too but then um, then you get to uh, the beginning of the 19th century uh, 1823 as I said the idea that um, our ancestors could have come from another planet so that could be uh, included as a, as a kind of UFO or alien contact. Then um, in 1857, there was a book published called The Magic Monitor, uh, um, which talks about a, a small village in Ohio called Jay, uh, which no longer exists, where um, the neighbors came out of their, of their houses one day and saw um, a kind of weird ship sailing across the sky crewed by, by giant people who are obviously not from this earth. And the, the writer in this case, a man called uh, Monet, uh, it's all in ancient alien, uh, sorry, ancient art, <laughs> alien artifacts too. It's, it's all in my book. Um, it, uh, he says that clearly they were, they were a crew of um, interplanetary explorers here on earth, maybe looking to uh, for, for some kind of commercial opportunity or to do uh, scientific scientific exploration so that was nine, that was 1857 and in fact i went to ohio about um 8 years ago to to, to look for that little village and um uh, i found it and uh, i've got some very nice pictures from that period um so there were lots of stories like that. Another thing that I mention in 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 my book is uh, how from 1847 onwards there are a lot of reports of weird objects falling from the sky. Some of them obviously are hoaxes, but um, many of them were meteorites covered in hieroglyphics, uh, meteorites containing weird objects. There's even the tale of um of a of a giant meteorite that contained a Martian mummy inside. 
Um, even when we, even when these are hoaxes uh, from that period, um, they're very valuable because they show us that people were ready to accept the possibility that we were being visited by by extraterrestrials. Wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I read a little bit about that. Um, the whatever it was, uh, the hoax with the hieroglyphics. That was uh, very interesting. So, you know, when you th you think about the modern UFO era, 1947 forward, and then it's spotty before that, but there's pretty consistent reports, but nothing like after 1947. And I remember Stanton Friedman used to always say uh, it was he um, kind of thought that the contributing factor to that was that, in his words, the kids found the matches. In other words, we found, you know, nuclear weapons, nuclear power, all that. Um, but what is your, what is your thoughts um, as far as, you know, why everything increased starting in that that era, 1947 and not so much before? Mm -hmm. um, well, firstly, uh, it wouldn't be really true to say that there hadn't been periods uh, of uh, UFO waves and UFO flaps uh, before 1947 because um, there were uh, mysterious uh, balloon sightings in the 1880s. You have the 1896 to 97 airship wave in which you have literally hundreds, if not thousands, of sightings in a very, very short period of time, um, many of which didn't look like um, wooden boats with masts and sails, which is something that that many modern writers believe that the that the airship wave consisted of. They they were just lights in the same way that they are today, and that that really took off at that in that period. Um, then, uh, when you get to, I mean, then then there were several decades of of intense UFO activity in that sense. Then when you get to 1946, October 1946, that for me really marks the beginning of the UFO phenomenon, even though there was a gap between that case and Kenneth Arnold's sighting on the 24th of June 1947. Um, on, in, in October 1946, uh, people in San, Diego, in San Diego saw a bullet-shaped object uh, flying in the sky and this caused uh, such a, um, uh, a stir, such an uproar that uh, newspaper uh, headlines were full of things like alien spaceship seen flying over San Diego, uh, mm. extraterrestrial seen in our skies. And that was just a few months before Kenneth Arnold. And the point is that at that time, people were more than ready to accept the possibility of alien visits. Then what happened after June the 24th is that um, people originally didn't associate um, uh, flying saucers with, uh, with alien spaceships. That was just one theory at, at that time. And if you look at the reports, a lot of them have absolutely nothing to do with modern UFOs. Many of them, because of the word saucer, many of them were just very small uh, like like sort of coaster or literally saucer shaped and saucer sized sized objects. Um, many of the sightings that that began the the 1947 wave 
just not related to UFOs at all. And many of them were hoaxes too. But what this did uh, was to elevate the status of UFO sightings and, and possible alien visits to a sort of celebrity status. Um, it encouraged people to go out and look up in the sky and report what they'd seen. Because for decades, um, nobody did that. People, if, if you saw a strange thing in the sky, people would not have believed you. Scientists wouldn't have reported it some of the time because that was highly ridiculed. Uh, it would have been ridiculed in academic circles. Most normal people didn't report it. They, um, that, that was also a time when um, uh, the belief in the supernatural was quite, was quite powerful. So uh, if you saw a weird thing in the sky, maybe it meant that your uncle or your grandfather or your, or your mother was going to die. That, that, that's the kind of um, superstition that existed at the time. It was called token phenomena. And there are hundreds and hundreds of sightings that never went uh, reported uh, formally uh, because they were considered supernatural. Then what happened was um, when it became socially acceptable to, to say that you'd seen a flying saucer, Everyone went out and reported the weird lights that they saw. This is exactly the same thing as, as what happened in the airship wave of 1990, uh, sorry, 1897, when it became socially acceptable to say that you'd seen a weird object in the sky, then you had more reports of them uh, because uh, nobody feared being uh, ridiculed or mocked. So um, that's, that's the first explanation, really, of why it became so important. But it's not true that um, there, there weren't UFO reports from before that. It's simply that until recently, uh, relatively recently, uh, through uh, research groups like my own called Magonia Exchange, which anyone, if anyone's listening, they can join freely. It's, um, it's a, 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 a group in which about 100 of us um, exchange cases that we find from the historical records. Um, we've shown that the, that the history of UFO sightings is much longer, much more interesting than what, for example, Stanton Friedman would have known at the time. Uh, so I, I was not familiar with the fact that those, um, what did they call them? The ships, the ghost ships or whatever they call them? In the, um, the, in the airship, sky, wave. Yeah, airship, the airship. Wave. Wave. Uh, I do remember thinking, well, that's odd uh, that it was a ship with a mast. But you're saying that that was uh, because I read something, uh, a clip or something somewhere that someone wrote in a newspaper that it was like a wooden ship, you know, with masts and everything. But that was just uh, confabulated from their stories. Is that well, you know, these the these days you're going to find flying saucer and UFO stories, particularly from the 1940s onwards. Um, about um, weird disks with antenna and all kinds of things that people made up. Uh, and those are the ones that, that, those are the stories that got the most attention because they were so, so silly or so eccentric or so whatever, very extravagant. Um, during the airship wave, the same thing happened. The stories that got the most attention were the ones that seemed the most impossible. So again, through the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, anyone writing about the airship waves um, would have reached the conclusion that most of them were, that they looked like wooden ships with masts and 
ores and, and whatever, yeah. and that has nothing to do with UFOs. But uh, nowadays, um, I mean, I, I bought a book uh, around the 1998, I think it was, about the airship wave, and it included about 250 cases, which seemed impressive at the time. But right now I've got 9,500 um, cuttings from just from the 1896 and 1897. So now that we have a lot more information, I can tell you that the airship waves were a lot more interesting. That's going to be volume three of my um, alien artifact series. Um, volume two is going to come out in a, in a month or so, and then it's going to be volume three. Now, when you mentioned earlier the San Diego bullet-shaped type of uh, craft or whatever it was, um, that kind of reminded me of also the ghost rock rocket flap in Sweden during 1946. Was it a similar type of a, an account? Um, not, not really, no, because the ghost rockets were basically sort of rocket type things. And they were confused also with uh, meteors and they, they were fast moving. The reason that they were called rockets was because uh, they were pretty fast moving and they, they, they just seemed to be some kind of um, wartime technology. But the object that was floating allegedly above um, San Diego was just uh, motionless in the sky. Then uh, it became even more interesting as a story because um, a medium uh, called uh, Mark Probert um, entered into communication allegedly with the with the crew aboard the weird thing, and they said, "Yeah, it's a spaceship, and we'd like to meet with your with your leaders and this kind of stuff." I, I mean, it's a more complicated story, but the fact is that it appeared in in headlines across the United States um, in October 1946. So I, I just think that that should have started the, the UFO uh, wave. Or there had been many previous triggers. I mean, if you go back to, I believe it was uh, 1926 or 24, um, there was a, a farmer who said that he'd found the um, the skull of a of an alien whose ship had obviously exploded um, above the atmosphere, and he got together a, a, a group of um, of neighbors so they could find the rest of the alien body and the remains of the ship. And there was so much of this going on throughout the 1910s, 20s, 30s. But it was just forgotten about uh, during the war period, uh, World War II, uh, and it seemed like something totally new when 1947's uh, sightings came around. Hmm. Uh, I'm sharing your. I should be sharing. There it is. This is your uh, the website you mentioned, Mag Magonia Exchange, uh, mm -hmm. where you can join for free. I will have that linked in the show notes and also in the uh, text uh, for the show. Uh, I've seen this one before, the battle in the sky. I can't remember. Was it Germany? It was thereabouts. Uh, the, the picture on the crest of it that you have here on the, on the uh, top of the website. What was that battle when all these people saw the battle in the sky? In the I remember correctly that was, yeah, if I remember correctly, that was Nuremberg. I'd have to look that up. Yeah. I have That's several right. of those. Yes. But, um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there were there were so many of those. The what the the problem really is that um, the internet is is the main source of where people get their information about yeah. what happened before 1947. But uh, obviously, the there aren't too many pictures from that period. I mean, photography didn't really exist before you know yeah. 1840. Um, not everybody. I mean, newspapers didn't didn't publish uh, photos, drawings, or sketches of most of the things that they reported. And we live today in a very uh, visual uh, culture. I mean, people are very um, interested in 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 sort of graphic representations of things. So what that means is that. Um, to, to sell the idea that aliens visited us in the past, uh, you have to present like cave paintings, religious paintings, and so on. But that means that uh, people are missing out on all of the fascinating stories and texts about cases that, that, that happened um, you know, before uh, that period. Um, so uh, what I try to do in in all my books now is to is to add a lot of of pictures, uh, drawings, some of which I'm using artificial intelligence to create, but to represent what our ancestors saw in the sky, because there just isn't enough um, uh, visual uh, stimulus for a lot of people to get excited about. Uh, one, one thing that I do mention in my in my book on um, on sources, this is called sources, but this is the Spanish version. I don't know where my English version <laughs> is. I've left it somewhere. But what I do here in one of the last chapters, I talk about how um, we've got to be very careful with um, cave paintings, religious paintings, sculptures, Mayan sculptures, Aztec sculptures of of flying saucers, which is something that. It's very popular these days on the internet, but in fact, most of it's just fake. Uh, most of it's just not true. Um, I think 100% of it isn't true, to be honest with you. Uh, and ah. it's unfortunate, uh, but it's just that uh, people just want to invent um, this this glorious visual past. And uh, these days, nobody reads books as much as they used to. And a lot of the information you're not going to get Without reading proper texts. So um, anyway, what I what I try to do, all of the books that I that I publish these days are just totally full of of graphic representations of what happened, and I try I, I try to make it as entertaining as possible anyway for for modern readers, because young young people today, uh, without wanting to offend anybody, they just don't read as much as. As as we did thirty years ago, unfortunately. So um, that's right. You know. Yeah. There's a there's a, along those lines. I know that uh, when I was first looking into this topic, I read something somewhere. Well, Alexander the Great had a UFO sighting, and then I go, oh. So when I started to research that, I realized that that only that was in a novel in 1952, and it goes no further back. So, you know, I mean, so that that's it, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's a contemporary hoax or whatever it is uh, or a fable of some kind. <clears throat> These things just get carried on from whenever they're created. So how do you find your you know, you talk a lot about text and that that's really interesting. You, you dive right in deep 
for uh, reading and text, but do you actually go to like libraries as well? Or, you know, you, you mentioned those 9,000 clip clippings or whatever. Is that all through like microfiche search? Or is it all online that you do today? Well, um, yeah, I, I used to depend on, on visits to libraries, which is something that I did when um, I was in the States for the first time in 1990 when I was 18. Um, I used to spend most of my time uh, playing truant from school and just going to the, the university library with a, a pen and notepad and, and whatever and or taking photocopies. Um, these days, everything's changed. And this is, this is the wonderful thing. And this is why we can expect a massive revolution in, in ufology over the next few years, because you can access literally billions of articles, but I mean hundreds of millions of pages of newspaper text uh, online. Um, some of them you have to pay for, some of them are, are completely free. So for example, I use uh, newspapers.com, which uh, has, again, literally billions of, of, of articles going back to the 18th century, I think. Um, in English, and um, another one is newspaperarchive.com. It's equally massive. Oh, yeah. And then there are many which are completely free. And you can do word searches just as you do in Google, but within these, these massive uh, libraries of information. So you don't need to physically go to a library anymore. Even so, um, I do sometimes have to buy books. So just last week, I I I ordered a, a book from a bookshop in the states, um, which has cost me a hundred and forty dollars, I believe, and I'm hoping it's going to arrive uh, very soon, and it's going to be another important part of the of the of the puzzle. Uh, so uh, the information can come from anywhere. Anyone anyone who wants to join uh, Magonia Exchange uh, can very easily find new cases to share. And we can tell you where to go, and you don't need to spend any money. Honestly, a lot of these, a lot of the major libraries these days have digitalized all of their books. And Google Books is a fantastic place too to find uh, mm. um, historical cases. And it's only when you have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of cases that you can start seeing patterns in the data. Um, Magonia Exchange has around between forty and fifty thousand cuttings altogether uh, in in the archives. Wow. And I mean, when I did this um, well, Wonders in the Sky with uh, 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 Jacques Vallée, um, then I have this this edition here, which is this massive hardback edition because we we needed to re-edit it because that particular book had mistakes in it or had problems with it. But of course, it did. Um, shortly after publishing it, uh, there was this massive digital explosion and we had access to better sources. But the point is that mm. this catalog here is based on sifting through hundreds and thousands of, um, of historical reports. So it's something that I'll, I'll continue doing in the future. Uh, Jacques Vallée wants me to continue writing with him and do a, a sequel to, to Wonders in the Sky over, over oh, the wow. next year. Let's see if we, we have time to do it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it takes a lot of time to do what you're, you're doing here. It's not something you can, I mean, when you say a year, it seems like that, that research would take like 10 years to put together or something like that. In that particular book, how long <clears throat> would you say that you did research for it? 
Um, well, um, this particular version of the book was probably based on the first the first version, which it was about uh, 15 years maybe, but this mm -hmm. one here was like three or four years later and uh, full of corrections and things. But for uh -huh. example, this this book here, I started around 1998, but I mean, it is going to be uh, several volumes. Fortunately, these days with artificial intelligence, you can you can organize information, look for patterns in the data and do wonderful things that we couldn't even do 12 months ago. So wow. um, I'm looking forward to, to spending Christmas uh, uh, getting up to date on, on AI and, and putting it to good use to, to organize this data. So basically what I'm saying is that what would have taken me 15 or 20 years several years ago these days would probably take about six months or less but it's not it's not the not the data that's the problem it's knowing how it all fits in together because most ufologists don't really have an idea about the chronology the timeline of all of this when i speak to um ufo enthusiasts they say yeah um what whatever happened today then they go back to Kenneth Arnold, then they'll jump back to the airship wave, and then they go back to ancient, to ancient Egypt, and they have no idea what happened in the intervening time, uh, which is why I'm writing this book series. Uh, so it isn't, it isn't the, the amount of time this is going to take uh, to organize now. It's more the, the, um, the you need a, a sort of uh, a historical framework in your mind in which to fit the pieces. Yeah, that's I, I love the work you're doing. It's just it's just great. Um, going back to this book, we have about uh, wait a minute. It's not showing here. Hmm. OK, it says it's uh, up. But uh, the book we there it goes uh, saucers tracing the origins of the disc shaped UFOs. That book there uh, we have about um, let's see, we have uh, about seven or eight minutes left here. So. I, and I thought we could talk a little bit about this book in particular, which you also released uh, last September. Uh, I'm very interested in this. Uh, the UFO sighting I had was, I guess you'd call it a disc or saucer shaped. Um, but there are early accounts. Obviously, there's, you know, carvings you see in ancient, you know, ancient carvings that show like a disc shaped type of thing, whether, you know, I mean, whether they were depicting what they saw in the sky or not, I don't know. But um uh, what are some of the early accounts of people seeing, you know, saucer-shaped craft? Okay, so in this book, um, I've I've uh, dedicated four chapters to historical accounts. Uh, so I have two which uh, are not uh, saucer-shaped, and then I have two which are circular saucers, ring-shaped, and and so on. Um, well, you can you can go back to the 18th century. Uh, you can find stories of people who saw objects like a grindstone, which is a, a round, like a thick wheel, uh, in the sky. Uh, there are there are uh, cases in which people compared the phenomena that they that they saw with with coins, for example. Mm. Um, there's a very nice case from the 17th century. Of um, of an object that they compared with a, a hat, but a round sort of disc-shaped hat, and there's actually a, a picture of it too, which I've put in the book. And um, yeah, I mean there are, 
But the, the, the point that I make in this book, however, is that we shouldn't be too fixated on, on, on disc shapes. It doesn't mean they don't exist, but it, it means that we have to be more aware that UFOs can take on a lot of different shapes. Um, in fact, if you look at the databases, uh, the biggest databases that have ever been made about UFO sightings, normally disks are about 2%. That means 98% of UFOs are not disc-shaped at all. Um, if, you, if you look back uh, before 1947, uh, you find that I calculated it as 0.002% of all UFOs were disc-shaped, and all the rest were other shapes. And if you look at modern UFO databases and catalogs, the uh, discs have practically disappeared completely, which is why you don't find YouTube videos of discs normally. You don't find good uh, photographs of discs, generally speaking. None of the videos that you see that the military releases uh, show anything resembling a disc shape. Um, and this is, this is just a reality that we have to accept. So um, that's, a, that's an important point that I make. Um, why, why do we consider disc-shaped objects uh, represent the UFO phenomenon if such a tiny percentage of cases uh, actually involve uh, discs? I mean, the fact is I've had to put a, a saucer on this book um, and it, it's a kind of signal to everybody this is about alien spaceships or, or something like that because everyone knows what this is. But in reality, this, as I said, 98% of UFOs don't look like this. Um, in fact, uh, I, I know the introduction to your program has disc-shaped uh, UFOs. I know that yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's the most common picture that we find on T-shirts and postcards and posters and um, uh, Fox Mulder's poster behind him, I want to believe. It's all about disc-shaped UFOs. But then the number of cases show that it's it's a it's a very 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 small fraction of of the total number of UFO sightings. So I explore that in this book for the first time. No one's ever ever done that, and uh, it's had different reactions. Some people have been really annoyed. That's that can't be true. That's not true, and whatever. But it, it just is. It's just the way it is. Uh, and and some people just accept it, and they say, well, obviously uh, something was something's going on that we didn't realize, and. I don't know. It's just um, I think that we've been fixating on the wrong shape. It doesn't mean that what you saw was not a disc-shaped UFO. It just means that it's you. You are probably very lucky. You should you should buy a lottery ticket uh, because uh, <laughs> or should have on that day particularly uh, because it's such a tiny fraction of cases. So um, also, what that book does is that it explores the life of Arnold uh, of Kenneth Arnold. It it talks mm -hmm. about all his mm -hmm. other um, UFO sightings that people never mention. I I was uh, discussing all of this with Kim Arnold, his daughter, while I was uh, researching for it. Also with uh, Chanel, his his granddaughter. Uh, very nice people. And um, yeah, I, I go into areas that have never been explored before. For example, I talk about the origin of the expression flying saucer, which most dictionaries will tell you was invented in 1947. But what I've, what I've done is I've shown that it comes from around 1880, 1881. 
And the mm. Oxford English Dictionary has contacted me to tell me that they're going to use my findings to update the next edition of the Oxford English Dictionary um, using using this book because I've I've managed to push it back about sixty years. It's it's actually very interesting because you can find the U.S. military using the the term flying saucer um, during its operations in the mid 1940s in a different context. But the point is that they were using the expression flying saucer. So so when Kenneth Arnold um, said that he he'd seen nine weird objects in the sky and everyone called them flying saucers. It, it, it was a term that was extremely popular at the time. Hundreds of thousands of people who picked up the newspaper and read that a guy in, in, in Idaho had seen flying saucers, they already knew the term. It was a common expression, and that's something that we've forgotten about. Very, very interesting. I knew it would be. <clears throat> so if you had to go through, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever done this type of concept, but if you go through time, what would you say is the most common shape? Um, oh, the uh, spheres, very, very common. Um, spheres are the most common shape, I would say. Anything any, any, anything like bubbles and spheres. Um, I did a, a study with um, a, a British uh, scientist, meteorologist, ufologist called Martin Schoff, and we published a book called... Um, Return to uh, Magonia, which is this one here, through uh, published through Anomalist, and um, together we did a we, we we made a catalog of cases which we called solar bubbles because there's this interesting pattern of UFO sightings that seem to be about luminous bubble-like phenomena. I mean, <laughs> what it means, I don't know. We just we just tell people what we find, you know. Um, so there was a lot of that. I mean. Um, I think that the, the main thing is that anyone interested, I mean, seriously interested in UFOs and they want to know where all of this has come from, they really need to pick up a book about, about UFO history. And unfortunately, the only one that I can recommend to them is my own, simply because I'm the first person to put all this together. Uh, I really wish that there were more books around. Um, you just can't trust most of them. Uh, the thing is, a lot of authors make make a living from this, and I don't, uh, which means that I'm freer to just report what I find. And um, a lot of writers just try to prolong the mystery, you know, for monetary wow. gain. So you, you just need to know what books to, to to look for. Well, I really do appreciate your work, and thank you so much. I, and we're out of time, so I really appreciate it. And you take care, and um, I will link the uh, the website and your books and all that in the show notes and everything. Thank you. It's and been Mary a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Okay, everyone. So we'll be back next week on the 26th.